The University of Louisville empowers students with over 50 fully online degrees and certificates in areas like business, public health, social work, engineering, and more. Flexible coursework allows time to focus on all of life's priorities. Learn more at louisville.edu slash online. From the University of Central Florida's Center for Distributed Learning. And the University of Louisville's Delphi Center for Teaching and Learning. I am Tom Cavanaugh. And I am Kelvin Thompson. And you are listening to TopCast, the teaching online podcast, or watching, as the case may be. Reading. Reading, yes. You know, um, interpreting through uh, semaphore or smoke signals or, you know, interpretive dance. However you are consuming this media, welcome. Welcome. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, I think it's interesting you always go for semaphore. I've noticed that before. Yeah, well, that's a fun word. Yeah, I, mean, I always go for smoke signals. Though. I go for those. I, I used them both this time. I know. I guess. Yeah. Tell, you know, Morse code, we didn't use that. Morse code, Jungle drums, yeah. Radar pings. Yeah, I can't. I was going to try to imitate a radar ping, but I don't think I can do it convincingly. <laughs> sonar uh, pings, maybe yes, it's sonar. Yeah, something, yeah. something like yeah. that. Uh, coffee bean grounds in the bottom of a coffee cup, interpreting those. Interpreting those, yeah. Almost like tea leaves or whatever. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know coffee was a thing, but yeah, sure. Okay. Sure. Let's do that. Let's do that. <laughs> uh, I think we have to drink the coffee first, right? I'm working on it. I'm working yeah. on it. <laughs> <laughs> you got a beverage over there, Dr. Kevin? Um, just um, one of my usuals, which mm -hmm. is the uh, San Francisco Bay hazelnut. Uh, Non-thematic, but much enjoyable. I have um, a, uh, a cup of Einstein Brothers coffee in my hand. Uh, I mustache you what you think of my cup, because <laughs> there's, a, there's a mustache on the thing, which I guess yeah. you have to kind of, I don't That's know. Right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I thought this one was kind of appropriate, um, the one I'm drinking for today's episode, because um, it's kind of a kind of a go-to dependable coffee, especially this time of year. I had uh, we had some family travel some years ago. It was actually my first time in an Einstein Brothers um, bagel place. Uh, it was around this time of year, family trip, and uh, I'm like, oh, I was really struck by that. Was they had like a special blend that time of year? Like, oh, I like that. And then I, I went looking for it like every every uh, time of year, you know, afterwards. So this time of year, I always think of Einstein Brothers uh, coffee because it's kind of a go-to and it's and it's dependable, and uh, you know, it's a it's a positive uh, thing this time of year. So I thought it's tasty, and perhaps you might find a connection that I intended in bringing it up for today's episode topic. I, I think I do. Sometimes you'll leave me little breadcrumb hints in the show <laughs> notes and things. Today you did not. Mm -mm. So I actually, so this is all on me. Yes. And I think it has something to do with this time of year, mm -hmm. something you kind of look forward to mm -hmm. and look for mm -hmm. annually <laughs> and yeah. um, sometimes even enjoy. Um, <laughs> sometimes even enjoy. That's yeah. right. Mm -hmm. I'm a big Einstein Brothers fan, uh, mm -hmm. just the coffee and the food and all of it. Uh, we have mm -hmm. two of them on campus here mm -hmm. um, at UCF. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, I, I don't think we're talking about schmears, but <laughs> we are talking about 
some some annual reoccurring stuff. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. That was the that was the connection that I was hoping for, and uh, indeed, we're going to have a conversation around um, some of the insights gleamed uh, from the recent Chloe Eight report, which is subtitled "Student Demand Moves Higher Ed Toward a Multimodal Future." Uh, longtime Topcast listeners might remember that we've. We've discussed Chloe reports a couple times in the past. I think I think maybe only twice. Uh, Chloe seven uh, last year. It was in episode number one twenty three. Hybridity predicted and more from Chloe seven, and we based episode ninety three around Chloe six. And we'll include links to those past episodes with all the show note uh, links uh, if you want to take a look at them. Yeah, it's um, it's a great um, it's a great annual checkpoint for like, how are we doing in the online mm-hmm. education space? Mm-hmm. What's changing, what's evolving, what's staying the same, what's getting more, what's getting less, all of that. Um, it, the last couple of years were sort of interesting because of the anomaly of the pandemic that was so reliant on online learning. Um, it, is it, it's probably worth um, kind of, you know, saying what Chloe mm. stands for. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're if you're not familiar, it's you know C H L O E, but it's an acronym. It's the the changing landscape of online education began in 2017, but I think it's sort of the successor of um, of the old Babson mm. um, studies that that were done annually by Jeff Seaman and and others. Um, and I think it's sort of continued on the the, uh, the legacy of of those annual updates that uh, that have always been so useful for us as we kind of mm-hmm. look at our bigger landscape of of online higher education. Mm-hmm. Yep, all that I like I like looking at it. Um, it's thoughtful um, summary of uh, of responses from uh, chief online learning officers across the United States, so, you know, numerical quantitative summaries, but thoughtful analysis of those summaries, uh, I think is, uh, has been really good. And, and uh, you know, it's helpful to kind of compare your experience with a, a more aggregated uh, view from the horizon or on the horizon, that kind of thing. I, I think that's helpful. Yeah, and I've found them over the years kind of, at least validating of mm. our our experience that's more mm-hmm. local, but mm-hmm. that hmm, others across the country mm-hmm. are also kind of seeing the same things that we are seeing here on campus. It does you don't feel so weird. Um, <laughs> maybe in in some ways, um, it, like in some categories, I would say UCF is probably more so than some schools, particularly mm-hmm. with things like hybridity and blended. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that we've been maybe on the edge of that, mm-hmm. um, but we're seeing a lot of other schools experiencing that same thing. And so that's been, that's been interesting and reassuring in some, in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. Um, I don't mind saying that in this particular one, one of the things that, I don't know, I, I'm going to sound like Johnny one note here. Right. But I, 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 cause you know, maybe you see what you're looking for or something, but I, one of my takeaways was that, <laughs> which is, I don't think an intended takeaway from this report was that, terminology is still a problem in our field. Mm. Um, and so I'm not bashing the the authors or editors of the Chloe report, but I think it's just 
it's just representative of where we are, I think, right? For instance, uh, terminology used in the Chloe 8 report, mixed mode instruction is defined as, quote, combining synchronous and asynchronous, unquote, presumably online, that was sort of left implied. Hybrid courses was defined as, quote, in-person and distance learning, unquote. Uh, blended shows up not as a definition, but in like charts as like blended slash hybrid, you know, so like with hybrid programs, blended slash hybrid programs with no definition given. But we're seeing, you know, all these mutations um, in various publications and, and um, community forums where hybrid is used increasingly, I see, in ways that allude to pseudo high flex approaches that we've sometimes characterized as dual mode simulcasting of classroom experiences. So, you know, for the casual reader, that might be a little confusing. You know, there's some nuance there. So it, it just struck, that struck me. And then of course the, the term multimodal is right in the title of the report. And that seems to be the preferred term to signify an umbrella style of combining online, in-person, and various other modalities in institutional contexts, right? That's, that's one of the big takeaways, multimodal. There's a bunch of stuff going on, but then within that, mixed mode, asynchronous and synchronous, hybrid, in-person, and online. Uh, so that was interesting to me. Yeah, and you're right. I don't think those terms are used consistently, universally across um, every institution. And mm -hmm. um, I often, like we use the term mixed mode here mm -hmm. uh, to indicate blended courses, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. courses that combine distance learning and, um, and synchronous classroom instruction. Mm -hmm. But the online portion could be either synchronous or asynchronous. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we don't necessarily have a lot of like definition around proportions of mm -hmm. each modality. Mm -hmm. And then I've heard people talk about blended learning, meaning blended programs. Some of the mm -hmm. courses are online, some of them are face-to-face, yep. -face, and mm -hmm. you can kind of pick and choose. Mm -hmm. Well, that's different than mm -hmm. a blended course, because yeah. you may not have a blended course in a blended program, right? Mm -hmm. And then, as you said, hybrid and high-flex, have been, there's some conflation going on there too. So when people are answering some of these questions, so it's almost like, well, are we all talking about the same thing? It's a good question. Yeah, uh, maybe a shout out here to our friend of the podcast and past guest, uh, Dr. Nicole Johnson. She has a fairly new uh, report out from WCET that she uh, was the lead author on. It was called What to Do When the Modality of a Learning Experience is Unclear, Guidelines for Creating Multidimensional Learning Experiences. And we'll put a link in the show notes for that. Cool. Well, you know, you mentioned sort of the, the annual check-in nature mm. of Chloe. And I will say that um, I find it useful because it is sort of a reliable benchmark mm -hmm. that does build from year to year. And I think it can be used in having conversations on campus, mm -hmm. um, especially with potentially leadership mm -hmm. um, uh, who may or may not be skeptical of, <laughs> of what's happening in the online space. Mm -hmm. like, well, look, look at the percentage of students that are taking at least one online class or that are taking mixture or whatever the metric is. Um, this is a 
reliable source mm-hmm. that is um, is recognized and and you can cite it. Yeah, I think that's exactly, I think that's exactly right. And um, you know, I speaking of of some of those comparison data, you know, kind of consistency from year to year. I think one of the things that uh, stood out to me is that it was reported in Chloe 8 that a, well, I guess two two conversely (laughs) positioned things. One, only 6% of the entire Chloe 8 sample indicated that at their institutions, the focus remains on serving an in-person student body and that they see no evidence of online demand among their own students. So 94% of respondents say that, uh, yeah, multimodal. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's true. Um, kind of looking at the, the summary, they, they even highlight some of that um, on the, on the web page, on the, like at the Quality Matters web page, yeah. for example. 57% of chief online officers report stagnant enrollment of face-to-face mm-hmm. programs. 57%. And 24% actually report declining or sharply declining face-to-face numbers. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's yeah, that's in that, uh, what is it, 94% or, that, yeah, you, right. that you just cited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also thought maybe because of that, I thought it's and it's got to be somewhat COVID-era influenced, but a higher proportion of faculty, full-time and part-time, than ever before in past Chloe reports are, quote, prepared to develop and teach online and hybrid courses. Now, that's still not the majority of faculty at the institutions of the respondents, right? Uh, less than a quarter of respondents said that the majority of their faculty are experienced in designing online courses, let alone formally prepared to do so. But still, that uh, that prepared is a is a is a higher proportion than than has been seen in prior reports. So that's an indication of something. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, certainly a recognition that. Maybe not enough so, but a recognition of the importance of faculty preparation to mm-hmm. teach online. Um, I think a lot mm-hmm. of people were colored by their experience in the pandemic mm-hmm. where people were just thrown in with no notice to teach these virtual classes, remote classes. I'm intentionally not saying online classes. Good for you. you. Know. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, they struggled. Right, mm-hmm. naturally, because mm-hmm. who wouldn't under those circumstances? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know, n- notwithstanding all the other craziness that was happening at that time with public health and everything else, um, so the the idea that well, we ought to be intentional and deliberate and train and prepare our faculty mm-hmm. and set them up for success, I think is a is a growing realization in a lot of places. Although I would like to see a number. Um, more than 25% of mm. a majority of faculty being prepared, mm-hmm. but it's going to take a while for people to kind of get that number up. Yeah. No, that that's right. I, I didn't go back and compare um, this, but you correct me if, if you remember differently, but I don't recall faculty incentives being talked about a lot in prior Chloe reports, but in this one, in Chloe 8, 
um, there was a little bit of a, a zooming in on that, like uh, what's the nature of faculty incentives for both online design and development and for teaching online. And uh, financial incentives of some sort were the mm -hmm. dominant incentive for development online. But, quote, remote work, unquote, or it was clarified, reduced campus presence was the dominant incentive for online teaching. There were other things as well, but those, those two things were the dominant ones. And I thought that was interesting. I just don't recall yeah. incentives being mentioned a whole lot before. I'd have to go back and look at them again. I don't recall it either, but it's it's possible. But mm -hmm. certainly, I don't think it was underscored like you know, this. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. but I I I don't remember definitively enough to say one way mm -hmm. the, one way mm -hmm. or the other. Mm -hmm. Regardless, I think it's a reality now as yeah. this as this report is sort of you know discussing, and it it's been a conversation I think we've had for years, not just within you know. UCF mm -hmm. um, during your time here, mm -hmm. but also like with colleagues around the country yeah, right. um, about like, well, how do you get faculty to build mm -hmm. online courses? And, um, you know, either you make, you have them do it as part of their load mm -hmm. as course prep, mm -hmm. or you pay them to do it as extra work on top of what they already mm -hmm. do. And it seems like that's, that's a part of it. And then do you pay them for the faculty development, the training right. um, or, or not? That's it, right. It seems to me that if you want them to do well, you need them to go through the training, and you may need that kind of an incentive to do that. that, that that's exactly where my head went to, Tom, because uh, my reading, maybe I, I misread, but my reading of the Chloe 8 report is these incentives were for the online design and development, not for the preparation. And I was thinking, I mean, maybe that's a non-typical approach, but you and I both know exactly what you just said, right? That the investment in some kind of formal preparation for effective online design and, and teaching is going to pay off. So you might as well in, invest and incentivize there yeah. <laughs> rather than in some kind of uh, this course development, that course development, because that doesn't scale. Right, yeah, and just a little tangent away from the Chloe report for a second, but yeah, my, uh, I would say you, you do one or the other. Mm -hmm. You either pay for faculty development or you pay mm -hmm. for faculty to build courses. Yep. And I, I agree with you. I think the better investment is you pay for faculty development. Not only mm -hmm. is it probably a better investment for the mm -hmm. university because you're not paying for every course that gets mm -hmm. developed, but it's better for the faculty because you're helping them That's to, right. you're investing in them and their That's knowledge right. and skills and everything else. And so it just makes their their lives maybe a little bit easier and makes their experience teaching online more successful and hopefully more enjoyable. But it's interesting. I won't throw anybody under the bus, but I had a conversation within within the last week where we were, having, we were talking a little bit about in financial incentives, and there was sort of like a grudging acceptance that maybe in the short term that was okay, but really shouldn't professional development really be in the realm of every faculty member, and shouldn't they just do it? And, and I'm thinking, man... Yeah, I mean, individual faculty have a lot on their plates already, right? And and they've got uh, scholarly commitments and professional development in their disciplines that don't necessarily lead them to, you know, prioritizing uh, what are probably scarce travel funds or 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 books or conference or course 
kind of funds to go do something on their own, right? Or their time, effort, and energy. So I think we grease the skids a little bit with financial incentives. Yeah, yeah, it depends on how important it is for yeah. you as an institution that That's you right. move a lot of bodies through training. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. If it's all voluntary, then, um, then you're going to get what you get. You're going to get what you get. That's, that's exactly right. Should we talk a little bit about the data contained in mm. the, uh, the Chloe report? Um, the, uh, that's one of the more interesting things. I like the narrative too, but the data are always interesting to kind of look at. Um, one of the things that, that was, was highlighted was about quality assurance. Mm -hmm. And um, in the notes here, you've highlighted that more than 50% of respondents in each category are not currently tracking various kinds of QA efforts. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. It was, yeah. There were, I don't know, there's like four or five different, uh, different types, and I think they aligned a little bit with things that were talked about last year. Um, some of that is, you know, of course, uh, standards-based practices and student services and whatnot. But yeah, I thought that was interesting as well. I mean, the, you, you want to look at the little graphs that show, you know, how much is being done. In that, and, but when you look at what's not being done, it's more than, more than half of respondents. But I was fascinated by the reason given for why that, why that is, which uh, the authors summarized as, lack of institutional interest in the data around quality assurance or infrastructure for the data gathering and analyzing and reporting, as well as the absence of capable staff. That's what were identified by the majority of respondents, the chief online learning officers, as the reason they don't track or report quality assurance related data at least the ones that compare online and face-to-face. -face. Yeah. I guess I, I relate a little bit just because, you know, we operate at a, at a certain scale and it's really, yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's almost impossible to put eyes on every section that gets mm -hmm. produced, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It would be it's hundreds and hundreds of sections mm -hmm. every semester. Mm -hmm. So there, there have to be other, it's not to say we don't, as you know, do quality assurance. We mm -hmm. just do it in different ways and mm -hmm. lean into formative quality assurance and spot checking and other kinds of things on the, on the back end. But I get it. I, although I do say I'm a little surprised, especially coming out of the pandemic, where mm -hmm. there's been so much criticism of mm -hmm. the quality mm -hmm. of that remote learning experience mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that you would think people would be maybe overcorrecting for that mm -hmm. a little bit by putting more emphasis on quality assurance. Yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, and some of those, uh, just I guess to be clear for our listeners, some of those QA dimensions were even around like institutional data um, that are leveraged for this purpose that are sort of um, counterpoised, right, with our more um, close to home online learning support efforts like uh, final course grade comparisons and end of term student evaluations. That was the biggest chunk, as I recall, end-of-term student evaluations, that was the biggest chunk that respondents said, yeah, we don't, we don't have those data. And uh, that's, that's, that's new here in, in some institutions where it's more decentralized and more traditional, like uh, here at my new institution, there's not a, there's not a standard form. 
across all academic units, across the entire institution. Yeah. And, yeah. E and then even if there was, the, the data stay in those academic units. They don't, so it's kind of harder to have that <laughs> holistic view <laughs> if you don't have a standard lexicon and if all the data aren't in one place. Hmm. Well, I mean, a couple of other little data points. Um, one is that, uh, you know, the one that, that is, is probably the headline most of the time is that, is that online and hybrid enrollment's growing. Mm -hmm. and it grows pretty much every year. Mm -hmm. So online mm -hmm. has grown 36% um, and hybrid 20% respectively kind of mm -hmm. year over year. That's it's a lot and it continues to it continues to go up. And that 50% um, of chief online officers confirm that the their their current strategic plans and resource allocations support a greater emphasis on online and multimodal learning. Um, so that's something that it seems like it's getting integrated more and more into institutional strategic plans, which is was not always the case. Yeah. Um, but many face resource constraints in doing mm -hmm. so. Um, mm -hmm. But and another thirty six percent say that a reconsideration of strategic priorities is currently underway, presumably to include some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. I find mm -hmm. that very encouraging. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I um, I didn't dig into this, but I remember some of our comments last year about Chloe Seven, and then the respondents, because we kind of hearkened, we kind of clamped down on this a little bit that um, that it's you know blended as a future now more than ever kind of a message that the respondents last year said, and and I think it's wrapped up in this multimodal construct of Chloe Eight, but that. Most respondents last year said the mixture of in-person and online will continue to grow, and the respondents said that the exclusively in-person and the exclusively online in the not-too-distant future, I want to say they framed it as like five years or something like that, would not be uh, you know, as prevalent as it is today. But clearly, as you just recounted, we're still seeing the growth in uh, in the online and in the hybrid blended space. Yeah, both, both. You 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 mentioned respondents. Um, do, you, do you want to say anything about the response rate? We were talking about that kind of before we hit record. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to beat up on anybody, right? But I yeah. think there's a certain reality check, and I don't know why I never paid attention to this before. <laughs> but I was particular. I'll just say I was. I I was particularly struck this year by looking at the response rate of the Chloe 8 uh, uh, responses on what, you know, the, the, the reports based upon 6.7%, right? So that's, uh, so we'll call that seven. So 93% of the folks contacted aren't represented here. Now, I like to think that the field is maybe more homogenous than it, than it isn't. But, I mean, you have to ask, you know, is something not being represented in the people you didn't hear from? Yeah. Yeah, you don't know. Although I will say just from a surface validity standpoint, mm -hmm. the numbers feel right to me. At least yeah. the, the trends definitely yeah. feel right to me. I, I have another. I have a, a look, you, the response rate is going to be what it is. Surveys yep. are always yep. challenged yep. by that. Yep. Um, I have a, another little nitpick, um, mm. which is their use of the acronym COO 
for <laughs> chief online officer. Because, you know, I came out of industry and COO is chief operating officer. Yes. And in fact, there are <laughs> there are institutions that have chief operating officers yeah. now too. Um, right. you know, it's rarer, but within uh -huh. the... Sometimes that's a title that the CFO gets at an institution. Mm -hmm. um, so I just think calling the chief online learning officer, which is some places called a colo, um, as the COO is just <laughs> creating confusion unnecessarily. Uh, so I don't know if, if I have any influence, and maybe I will. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, I will. I will make that suggestion. But for anybody who's might be listening, who who's involved, um, just FYI, that's a thing. There you go. Tom's coming for you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe I know we need to wrap up, but one maybe last thing for me that I thought was really interesting is with all the the quality assurance stuff. There were the practices of quality assurance, but then. I don't remember this ever being addressed before. I thought it was fascinating. The the idea of like closing the loop with stakeholders on what you're doing and what you're finding with regard to quality assurance, especially students. Uh, that was interesting. Like the the doing of quality assurance practices would be you know in excess of fifty percent. Your respondents are like, oh yeah, we're doing lots of good stuff. But when it comes down to communicating, we'll say with students, it's like 11, somewhere between 11 and 32% of respondents say, yeah, yeah, we, <laughs> we, we tell people <laughs> how that turned out. And then I thought this was fascinating. Somebody was thinking, and then he, the, the, the last final step is like, and do you use that as like a recruiting message? Like, our stuff's really good. Here's what the data say about how good our stuff is. And like very, 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 very few people do that. I thought, well, that's 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 a nice light shined into a dark corner. Yeah, and it's one way for some institutions to rise above um, who may not have like huge brand recognition or, you mm -hmm. know, $100 million a year in marketing yeah. or whatever to kind of at least communicate their value yeah. and what they have to offer to, to lean into that as opposed to just, you know, our football team won X or whatever. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. Well, sir, shall I try to put this plane on the runway? You should. So by way of summary, we might say that comparing our individual institutional experiences with those of a larger group of colleagues helps us avoid becoming myopic. And the Chloe Report is an important part of continuing to raise our gaze as we seek to do what's best for our institutions, students, faculty, and communities. How's that? That sounds great. Awesome. Well, thank you for um, reminding me of the goodness of Einstein Bagel's coffee, <laughs> uh, Kelvin. So until next time, for TopCast, I'm Tom. I'm Kelvin. See ya.